when I hear people advocating for MAID, you know, as a way of, of dying with dignity, you know, what they're, what they're really saying is that, is that they're grieving or they don't want to continue living in an undignified manner, right? You know, dependent on someone else for all your physical needs, you know? I mean, imagine, you know, you, know, you lose that sense of dignity, but what they're really grieving is not a loss of dignity. It's a loss of their sense of dignity. Welcome to another Prepare Dancer podcast. My name is Sean Walker, and as always, I'm joined by Scott. How are you, Scott? Good morning, Sean. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you. For those that are watching on YouTube, you might have noticed that my set changed a little bit in the last podcast. We actually had our eminently talented Becca Whipple up at my studio, which is my living room, uh, to help with some lighting and with some setup and things like that. And so she left me five pages of directions on how to set up my studio, even included drawings. So I want to thank Becca for giving me all those directions. Hopefully, yeah, this we, looks you can use similar. all the help you can get, Sean. Boy, <laughs> when I saw the pictures, I'm like, wow, Becca might have been like, he needs a lot of help with this. We need to draw him some pictures on how to do that. So, but anyways, so Scott, our topic yeah. for today, this, uh, so mm-hmm. we're in the cancel culture series. Last episode's topic uh, was abortion, a heavy topic, um, definitely uh, to be discussing. And and I just, you know, before we jump into this week's topic uh, made, I just wanted to, and, and we had talked about this at the end of the last episode, is yeah. when we're talking about these subjects, we get into sometimes about the arguments, the reasoning and things like that. And so we we did talk about it at the end of our uh, abortion episode, and, and we wanted to lead off with this is just the recognition of how uh deep these subjects are uh, in terms of personal feelings and the effect on people that it isn't always easy it's not always easy argument to say well that makes sense right so you need to believe this people uh, are struggling with these issues and rightfully so and so we we come to these subjects with that recognition uh, that as christ followers that we're there to minister not to win arguments uh, or anything like that that's a that's a great lead off, Sean. Uh, I think a good uh, I think that's a good tone to to set, really with with mm-hmm. all the difficult these difficult conversations we've been having. Because you're right, it's not enough just to just to k- kind of learn the sound bites of the argument or the position that you happen to be comfortable with. The reality is these are really difficult subjects to discuss. They're very personal. People have mm-hmm. very personal reasons for holding one side or another, and and we really do, and I think this came out in our last discussion, we really do need to take time to listen, you know, to, to where people are coming from. Again, as Rome, or as Proverbs says, to speak before listening is folly and shame, right? So to just kind of, uh, yeah, I think, I think generally speaking to, to exactly the point you made, Sean, what we were really trying to do here, prepare to answer, is help Christians move beyond the, I think, the, the polarized you know, uh, arguments of culture where you got to get in one camp or another, and then they're just lobbying grenades at one another, hoping that everyone will come to the side. We don't have that. That's not our, that's not our prerogative as Christians. Um, That's not the the gospel mission we've been given. We've been given the mission by Christ to speak gospel truth into people's lives where they are. 
and and to do so with grace and and mercy, not in judgmentalism, but to try and persuade people. Uh, and Paul and Paul talks about that clearly in Second Corinthians five, where we've been given this ministry of reconciliation, whereby God through Christ is seeking to reconcile all things back to Himself through Christ, through the blood of Jesus, which is ultimately about God's grace and forgiveness for all people. So yeah, we always want to keep that posture of of humility and grace, mm-hmm. even when we wade into these difficult and controversial subjects. Yeah. 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 Thanks, Scott. And so today's topic is on MAID. Uh, so for uh, Canadians, we've been hearing about MAID recently in the news. Uh, MAID yeah. would stand for Medical Assistance uh, in Dying. And right. it has been in Canadian law for a while, but uh, just recently, Scott, it, it's kind of come again to the forefront. Yeah. And I think today, what, one of our goals too is just to f- uh, again, again, our, our target audience, uh, um, our, our ministry is aimed at helping to equip believers, followers of Jesus. Uh, you might not be a follower of Jesus and listening to us, and, and I hope you, you, you find what we have to say of interest because what you'll be hearing is what Christians think about these kinds of things and how we think about them. But one of yes. our goals, too, is just to help inform uh, brothers and sisters in Christ to be a little more informed on the issue and uh, yeah, one of the reasons why it is, it's, it's been in the news for some time. It was in 2015 when the Supreme Court of Canada determined that withholding end-of-life services, or we, we call it MAID, uh, some, of our, uh, some others might refer to it as assisted suicide or euthanasia are terms that are often used also. But, uh, but our Supreme Court saw it as unconstitutional to withhold those services from people, that that was a, a breach on their constitutional rights of individual freedom. So since then, it's been quite a discussion, but it's been, it's been gathering momentum just because, uh, as, as we expected, the moment they opened the door to that, you know, they left all kinds of assurances and restrictions that it would only be for such select cases. But of course, over time, the door is opening and opening. And so now, just just two weeks from now, we're in early March, but by March 17th of this year, 2023, is when it's set, the, the, the law is set to be extended to offering made to people who are su- suffering from mental illness, not just physical life-ending illnesses. Um, so, so, you know, that's, that's another reason why it continues to be, yeah, a real lightning rod for discussion. Um, because yeah. it's like the, the boundaries keep getting pushed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe we should clarify some terms. Um, you know, words are important, but also terms and, and conceptions. And and when we come to MAID, though, we, we might have a confusion between end-of-life palliative care versus MAID. Are those the yep. same things? Are we talking about the same stuff? I mean, we've had palliative yeah. care for a long time. We've had DNRs, do not resuscitate orders. What are yeah. we talking about here? R- right. Oh, yeah. And and I think it's worth clarifying. Uh, a good friend of mine, he, uh, he passed away tragically a couple of years ago, but he was a very well-regarded doctor in the palliative care field here in Canada. And he and his brother had written an article in a medical ethics journal that I was reading uh, in preparation for our talk this morning. And one of the points he made was... You know, this tendency in the or this danger in the public consciousness for people to confuse or to conflate palliative care with uh, medically assisted dying okay. uh, or medical assistance in dying. And, um, and, and in fact, the, the Canadian Society of Palliative Care Physicians 
they're quite concerned about that. And, sure. uh, yeah. So, so I think just to, just to be clear, I think it'd be worthwhile for our listeners just to, to clarify the difference between made and palliative care. And I'm going to use the language used by the, you know, the medical professionals. Here's the definition for made according to the, the Canadian society of palliative care physicians. Made is medical assistance to intentionally end a person's life, either through lethal injection, which would be what we'd call euthanasia, or self-ingestion of a lethal dose of drugs, which we would refer to as assisted suicide. Hmm. Palliative care, here's how they define palliative care. Palliative care, as in, in distinction from made, provides medical assistance or aid to patients and families to help them live as fully as possible until their natural deaths. So the, I think the key difference there is palliative care is intended to, to maximize the quality of a patient's and their family's lives until natural death comes. And that would include things like using medicine to you know, alleviate pain and alleviate suffering and things of that nature. Um, but there's the key distinction. It's not done in order to hasten death, even though some pain-killing measures may bring death on more, death more quickly. Th that's mm -hmm. not the intention. That's a side effect, or that may be a byproduct of the necessity of using pain medication in palliative sure. treatment. So okay. it, it's interesting. What I gather from the reading I've done is that the concern with the palliative medical community is there, there, there is there could be this this public perception that the two are somehow the same thing. And, and so there's the key distinction that made is intended to end life. Um, okay. whereas palliative care is, is really used to optimize the, the person's quality of life until their natural mm -hmm. death. Yeah. So you had mentioned that it, that the uh, Supreme court had, uh, kind of struck down these laws or, or had said to parliament, you know, you need to look at this assisted, uh, suicide or, or made in 2015, do we have numbers? Do we do we know mm. how many people are are using made? Is this increasing? Is it is it something that isn't actually used at all? Do we know that? No, yeah, no. To date, to date, since that, since then, so really since 2016, to date, there's been just a little over 30,000 deaths in Canada by medically medically assisted death or medically assisted suicide. Um, but no, the the numbers are accelerating. So in 2016, yeah. there were a thousand. Uh, in 2021, we don't have the stats for 2022, but I suspect they're higher. 2021, so that's six years later, was um, there were just just mm -hmm. over 10,000. So yep. so 10 times 10 wow. times increase, right, in six years. Okay. Um, yeah. So yeah, and and of course, you can only you can only imagine that if they extend now the eligibility of made now to include people suffering from mental illness in addition to physical ailment, right? You can just mm -hmm. see how that those numbers are probably just going to skyrocket. Yeah. Yeah. Those numbers are, are definitely sobering. Now, when I think of made and reasons, so, so kind of what would come to mind if someone were to ask me, you know, why do you think people are using made? Uh, probably the first thing that would come to mind is, you know, they're suffering pain that they can't manage, right? That that would... That would be, you know, intolerable suffering, like physical suffering, uh, mm -hmm. would be what I imagine would be uh, the number one issue. Do they yeah. have stats? Is there something to say what reasons there are? Yeah, well, it's interesting. And I, and I think most people would probably agree with that, Sean, that 
that the number one reason is, you know, to alleviate people from, 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 you know, deep physical suffering. And of course, you know, we don't want to minimize that. I, I completely sympathize with the desire to end a person's suffering. Suffering is a horrible evil because of sin and the the brokenness in the world that sin has brought. But, but interesting though, um, yeah, no, no, the, uh, the government has been keeping statistics on those who've gone through the made process. And here are, here are the top reasons that are given by those who choose made the reasons why. And of course there may be more than one. So a lot of these reasons are chosen more than once. Um, but here's kind of the order in terms of, in terms of prevalence, the number one reason given by people who, who take part in made is that they've lost the ability to engage in meaningful activities. In fact, 86% of made recipients stated that as, as their reason. Another was the loss of ability to perform activities of daily living. So just not, no longer being able to do the things that we enjoy. The third was the inadequate control of pain or, or the concern that pain could not be adequately controlled. And that was around 57%, uh, followed shortly by loss of dignity at about 54%. So, I mean, Hmm. all of those reasons are stated by, by a number of recipients, but, but those are kind of the order of the most, the most prevalent reasons given all of which you can appreciate oh for sure yeah it it just it surprises me that you know the inadequate control pain wasn't number one i i had always kind of envisioned that that would make sense right that that alleviation of pain that suffering would be number one but that's fascinating to me that you know it's the loss of meaningful activity like in essence meaning yeah well and 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 that's i think that speaks to you know there are a couple of, there were a couple of good books that i have read um on the subject of made and one was mm-hmm. written by um blaze elaine and jonathan van maren and they are with the canadian center for bioethical reform they were quoting victor frankel and if you remember who victor frankel is he was a, a very well-known uh psychologist but his what what really brought him to the forefront in terms of notoriety was that he had survived, uh, the concentration, he was a, he's a Jew, he had survived the concentration camps of Nazi Germany. And he's written extensively on the whole subject of suffering. And Frankel, you know, he talked about suicide really as really suicide is not the problem. Suicide is a symptom. Uh, okay. and what it's a symptom of is despair. And he saw this, he he saw this at work in the concentration camps. There were some people who, you know, they, they despaired and ended up taking their lives because of, because of the situation and the circumstances in the concentration camps, where on the other hand, Frankel saw people enduring the same, you know, hardships, the same suffering, but in fact, they, they found resolve to keep going. And the, the, you know, he was trying to figure out what's the key, what was the key difference and for Frankel, he said, the despair that would lead one to, to commit suicide. He said, despair really is suffering, but not just suffering, because some people suffer and don't despair. But despair is suffering minus meaning. Oh, and he came up with this wow. really quick he, yeah. this really quick equation. D, he used it mathematically. He said, <laughs> D equals S, suffering minus meaning. Yeah, right. Wow. And okay. so, so here, here's something he said um, in, an, in a live interview uh, on YouTube. 
that I found. Uh, he said, some people get cancer, others get hurt by car accidents. These are very real cases of suffering, not to be minimized, but whether someone despairs is, in light of these experiences is in direct proportion to whether they find meaning in the situation or not. So, so I, I guess that you were surprised, so was I, but mm-hmm. but when I when I listened to what Frankel had to say and his observations, it, yeah. it, it makes sense that yeah. probably the highest one of the, the biggest problems is that not that people are suffering, but that their yeah. sense of suffering is in the midst of meaninglessness. That there's no meaning for it. Yeah, yeah. Which I think as Christians we can speak into. Yeah, in and I think the- that is something we need to to talk about. Is is that as Christians we see that no there there is meaning in suffering. We don't we don't call suffering good. It's evil. But we sure. know that God God can redeem it and mm-hmm. and yep. use it and does use it uh, to bring about to bring about good things. So that's yeah. so that's something worth discussing. Yeah, and maybe before we get to that, maybe we can circle back and and kind of talk about kind of talk about a little bit more about made for those that maybe don't uh, know all the details about it. So we've kind of talked about these numbers; they're yeah. going up. Um, and so my question would be: so what makes you eligible to do this? So you know, I I'm in despair. Right. Uh, what you know by Canadian law allows me to go through with this procedure? Right. So if you go to the if you go to Canada.ca, that's our that's our government's our federal government's website. You type in made, search made, and it'll take you right to a, the page, the made page. A couple paragraphs down, it'll it, it lists the eligibility criteria. In fact, I'm just going to go to that page right now. Um, yeah. Well, it lists a number of things. I won't I won't take the time to go through all of them because it's you know some of the, some of the things are just technical, like you know you need to be eligible for health service in Canada, things like that. The key one though is about the third one down that says you must have a grievous and irremediable medical condition, and then it gives a link to because of course as soon as I read that I'm like okay well what constitutes what do you mean. Yeah, let's define that. And the next paragraph down, it does. Well, here's what it says. Uh, to, to be considered as having a grievous and irremediable medical condition, you must meet all of the following criteria. It says you must have a serious illness, disease, or disability, excluding a mental illness until that is March 17th, right? It actually includes that in parenthesis. Be in an advanced state of decline that cannot be reversed experience unbearable physical or mental suffering from your illness, disease, disability, or state of decline that cannot be relieved under conditions that you consider acceptable. And then it, and then it, qualifies, uh, it qualifies under that definition by saying you do not need to have a fatal or terminal condition to be eligible for medical assistance in dying. I mean, <laughs> there's, there's a lot packed in there. I guess the, the main problem, you know, as I read through that list of eligibility criteria, it's just yeah. the subjective nature of of True. all of those, you know, all of those descriptors, yeah. uh, starting with the word yep. grievous, right? Right. <laughs> yep. What's yep. grievous it's... to one may not be grievous to the other. What constitutes serious illness? Uh, apparently, it doesn't have to be a fatal illness. So serious doesn't right. necessarily mean fatal. Yeah. Right. Which or means terminal. you're not going to die from this, right? N- no. Yep. Or at least not immediately. Yeah. But but those criteria are just so subjective. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I was just gonna say as as you're going through them, I'm thinking you you could probably qualify for anything. 
because it is so subjective. I could have anything and say that it's unbearable. I can't bear this. And who are you to say that it is bearable? Where, yeah. where is that criteria? Yeah, I want to, you know what? I want to be fair, Sean. I want to be fair to those who are in the medical community who are part of medical existence and dying. And I mean, I've read enough of the reports made to, I mean, the government kind of, they kind of elicit professional help from medical groups or doctors or whatever, basically to investigate, to see, you know, how do we create the best policies so that it doesn't, doesn't become, you know, willy-nilly open season. I think there there is a great deal of care being taken in trying to trying to create protocols that you know prevent abuses and and create limits but you can't help but realize that you know yeah once you open the door it's hard to see how you can prevent it from getting wider and wider when you know these kinds of criteria are so very subjective right and especially now you know we're heading towards mental illness well how and how can anyone objectively evaluate mental suffering that you are going through that you're describing and that in your mind warrants you to be a candidate you know yeah exactly you see how that's going to become very difficult well it becomes sure. impossible yeah it becomes difficult so we've looked at the stats. It looks like MAID is increasing. Uh, we've looked at reasons why, uh, like I said before, very surprised that kind of the, the top reason being, you know, loss of meaningful activities, loss of meaning. Uh, we've talked about eligibility, uh, the subjectivity of it. So as Christians, where do we start? How do we respond to this culturally, personally, um, in our daily life, what do we do? I think what we need to get to, Sean, um, we've been talking about made as it stands, kind of the just, I guess, just the phenomenon as we're, we're seeing it unfold in Canada here right now and the realities on the ground. Um, you know, even in talking about things like, you know, protocols that would keep it from being abused or anything like that, I think that that really misses the point altogether. Um, that, that I think Christians ought to be concerned with because what we're ultimately talking about here is the sanctity of life. That my main concern is not that if you open the door, mm -hmm. right, uh, it, could, it ends up being a door you can't shut and the floodgates just mm -hmm. open. My concern as a Christian is that the door has been opened right. at all. Yep. Because of what that signifies, and I think ultimately what it signifies is that in our culture, there's been a shift in how we value human life. Yeah. You can't get away from that. And, and, and what, what it ultimately comes down to is realizing that, that what we are doing in advocating for assisted suicide is that we're suggesting that there are some lives that are no longer worth living. Right. And, and the reason we know that is because you know, because most people who support assisted suicide would also support suicide prevention. Mm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, this is, this is a point that, um, this is a point that, uh, Aileen and Van Maren make in their mm. book. They say most people who support assisted suicide also support suicide prevention. And this leaves us with more questions than answers. When someone is suicidal, how do we decide whether to assist or prevent their suicide? Where do we draw the line between those who get to be killed and those we fight to save? 
Who has a right to choose their own death? And who has a right to be prevented from self-harm, right? Who gets suicide prevention and who gets suicide assistance is the, is the question it boils down to. And they, they argue that we, you know what, we can't, we can't try and reduce this to a discussion about rights. And I think many in the maid camp would say, you know what, we need to, we need to protect people's rights to make the choice to end their life. But the reality is, but we don't do that for everyone. Some people who choose to end their own life, we prevent them. So what it boils down to is that we're splitting, you know, we're splitting the human race people groups into two, basically into two categories of people. People whose lives are worth saving or worth living and people whose lives yeah. are not. Yeah. And, and for years I had worked in the uh, mental health sector. And uh, so when they started talking about MAID in terms of how making it available to those with mental illness, that was the thing, Scott, that struck me first off uh, for many years. I mean, we mm -hmm. worked to help alleviate uh, suffering, mental uh, health suffering in terms of suicide ideation, right? This was very important in our work, yeah. right? It was to recognize it, uh, to then work with those suffering uh, from that illness and to prevent it. I mean, that was, you know, almost job number one in mental health. And so when, of course, when I heard this, I thought, oh, man, is that now going to be difficult working in mental health? To exactly your point, uh, to who are we to save and work and and care for and and those yeah. that I don't want to say not care for, but not work to help them change their mind about ending their life. So, yeah, it's uh, it's that's a very difficult difficult subject. Yeah. Well, I mean, you just I think I think the general principle. I think we just need to wake up and realize how how dangerous this has become. Is that we we are now justifying our our ability to judge. That one life really, really, there are some people who would be better off dead, is what we're yeah. saying. Yeah. But then when you realize we're then putting, we're then putting those decisions not only into the hands of people who are despairing of mm -hmm. life, but also to medical caregivers and people who are supposed to be, you know, preserving life, not taking it. I, I think that just, I think that's the sticking point is that we're, we're, as a society, we're we're justifying, de, you know, devaluing human life in the name of preserving rights, but but we're not being consistent. Right. Right. Okay, so yeah. Scott, we talked a bit a little bit about rights, but when we're talking about made two, uh, people often talk about you know this is a way to preserve dignity. This is a way for me to preserve my dignity uh, based on on what kind of what's happening. So, so what would we say to that? How would we respond to that? Yeah, I mean, and again, that's, it's not as though I'm not sympathetic with, I guess, the plea or the, yeah, or I guess the plea and the, and the, the situation for people who are, who are facing end of life illness that, you know, has deprived them of really all quality of life. And so, yeah, the, the often the very emotional argument made is that, you know, we need to let people die with dignity. And I think, I think we need to, again, just reflect on that, Sean. I mean, we, we use words, we use words that we need to think about the way we use them because, because we use the word dignity in a lot of ways. Generally speaking, you know, generally speaking, when we use the word dignity, we're, there are two 
really aspects to it. One is the notion of an inherent dignity, you know, and, and again, and this would be reflected, you know, there's, there's a dignity to human life that, that is separate from anything a person can do or, or express or live out. The, the other side of that coin, I guess, would be expressed dignity. So, for instance, when you say that someone's acting in an undignified manner, it means their behavior is undignified. Well, undignified in, in relation to what, right? It, it should be reflecting something else. And, and ultimately, to say that I'm, I've lost my dignity is to say that basically the dignity that is inherent to me as a human being, I can no longer bring to expression or no, is no longer being expressed, either because I can't, mm-hmm. right? Or someone is behaving toward me in a way that robs me of my dignity. Right. Yeah. And that's because every person possesses an inherent dignity of human life. Now, for the Christian, we understand where, that, where that's ultimately rooted. That is ultimately rooted in the fact that we are created in God's image. Every life is dignified. Every life has inherent value that cannot be taken, that cannot be, uh, you know, uh, erased or, or undone because we're created in the image of God. Now, for, the, for our secular society, it's, it's rooted in something else. And it, I guess it varies whether it's, you know, human reason or consciousness or, or the fact that we're agents that can, can make free decisions or whatever. But I mean, even when you read things like the UN Declaration of Human Rights, Right, it says that you know it, it recognizes the inherent dignity and the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family. That that's the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. So you know you've got these these global secular organizations that, in the name of human rights, affirms the equal dignity, the equal worth of every person. Well, well, and rightly so, but but that can't be based on some kind of. Uh, capacity to express it. It's got to be rooted somewhere else mm-hmm. outside of our own ability to express it or someone else's ability to, to, you know, rob me of it. So when I hear people advocating for maid, you know, as a way of, of dying with dignity, you know, what they're, what they're really saying is that, is that they're grieving or they don't want to continue living in an undignified right. manner. Right. You know, dependent on someone else for all your physical needs. You know, I mean, imagine um, and I, I can imagine, you know, having to be taken to the toilet and, you know, uh, having to be fed and and those kinds of things mm-hmm. where you lose you lose control of your most basic bodily functions and have to depend on someone else to meet those needs for mm-hmm. you. It's humbling to be sure, you know, to be to be alone and unproductive, you know, unable to make a meaningful contribution, you know, you lose that sense of dignity that every person wants to be able to to have and carry. And their suffering prevents them from, you know, from maintaining their own sense of dignity. But But what they're really grieving is not a loss of dignity. It's a loss of their sense of dignity. And that's because they're no longer able to bring to expression or no longer are no longer receiving, you know, the recognition of or expression of the dignity that is theirs, that that belongs to them. Right. Right. And so so the tragedy with made is that the solution we're providing in the name of dignity, 
uh, is allowing people to commit the greatest assault to their own dignity that they could possibly right. commit. Right? It's the most undignified thing we can do to human dignity to eliminate the yes. life that is itself possesses an inherent mm -hmm. dignity. Yes. So, but I can, I, but I can appreciate, you know, or how how grievous it is to lose that sense of dignity. But I think that's the whole yeah. point. I, I think that's the, what what needs to be addressed. And I, what I, and what I appreciate about the reading I've done and my understanding and my interactions with those in the palliative care uh, community is that that's the very thing they're seeking to address. Right. If when I've lost all of my capacity to express the dignity that that is true of my life, right? Well, what, so then what am I left with? Just just the, the ultimate affront to my dignity by taking my life yeah. away? Yeah. And this is where I think as the church we mm -hmm. need to we need to recognize our part to play here yeah. too. No, what needs to happen at that point is that the community then or or others need to then bear expression to the dignity that I have. And that's precisely what happens in palliative care or other kinds of care ministries where where people come and meet, you know, the most basic needs of others. They're they're displaying, they're showing, right, the value and dignity of human life by meeting those very, you know, basic needs, by tending to them and caring for them. That's that's a display of human yeah. dignity, I think, of the highest order, and I, you know, and I think I think that comes straight out of the teaching of Jesus, yeah. where where we love one another as we love ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And, and what a great uh, example! What a great way to show that love of Christ, uh, the the love of the Trinity, and and what strikes me in that situation. So those coming to help to preserve that dignity of that person is you need both people in that situation, right? That you need the person yeah. that is suffering yeah. and you need the person to come alongside and to provide that care, all in the hopes of ultimately glorifying God in terms of showing how God, Christ works. But you need both of those people, right? That, to, to make that happen. Yep. Yeah, and I think it's instructive, Sean. I think it's instructive for the, for the church, and and I think there's some conversations that the church needs to have about our mm -hmm. role as the as the people of Christ in in a fallen world in our you know in our society, mm -hmm. the role that we have to play in helping preserve human dignity by 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 demonstrating by showing the love of Christ. But I think there's something else that that more broadly, you know. On a subject like this, we can't always appeal to people at the level of faith if they don't share right. our faith. Yeah. But I think there's something we do need to help uh, help our culture see the 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 danger in medical assisted suicide is not just to the the person whose life is being taken away, but I think the danger also is the danger of you know of our own culture, our own society that we're losing our soul. That, that what, what we're doing as a society is we're saying, you know what, that's a life that's no longer worth living. So the best thing to do is to eliminate it rather than saying, you know what, there's so much dignity in that life that what we as a society, the way we ought to respond is to meet the needs, it's to care for the suffering, right? To enter into their suffering with them. And I think that's part of it. I think we're afraid to, or we don't want to, or we think it's easier to not enter into people's suffering with mm -hmm. them for fear or whatever, 
Maybe it's more convenient. But I think the consequence is we're losing our mm. soul. Yeah. As human beings. Yeah. yeah. Right? Because we're we're meant for community. And when you enter into someone's suffering, that is probably the most intimate and personal way to to engage with another human being, right? To to care for them and tend to them. And and now you and I, Sean, know as Christians that you're right, because we are made in the image of God, because we were created by God, the God who is three in one, our triune God, who is community in his very nature, has created his image bearers to live as community together so that we we very much do fulfill our created purpose when we not just show our love for God, yeah. but we show our love for one another by giving our lives for another, right? By serving the other, mm -hmm. yeah, and and but generally, I think that's that's one of the great perils in our in our Western culture now, in wanting to eliminate suffering by eliminating the sufferer. I think we're jettisoning a part of our humanity, mm -hmm. yeah, and I think it's just going to continue to 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 yeah to kill the soul of our of mm -hmm. our culture. Yeah, but what a great call for Christians in the church though, Scott, in terms of this issue, to just not stand with placards, yeah. not to protest, not just write letters to MPs, which there are places for doing that, but to recognize that as the church, as Christ followers, that we're called, it's quite clear in scripture, to alleviate suffering. We are called to do that, right? To yeah. give that cold glass of water uh, to those that do that. And, and, you know, this is reminiscent of our last episode on abortion. Right where where we got to the point yep. of talking about our role is not just to stand on the sidewalk or march and marches, but to help alleviate suffering, right? Because that is what we're called to. Right, do. and 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 I think yeah, you're right, Sean. And I think now part of the challenge is if we just try to to address this at the level of activism, I don't think we'll get anywhere because I mean all of this all of the polling data shows that the vast majority of Canadians in our culture are in favor of. And I think that's because the vast majority have, have simply bought into the, the, the emotive argument of, well, let's people, let's let people have their own rights, right. And die with dignity and alleviate the suffering. And that, that yeah. seems on that seems on surf surface to be the most expedient yeah. way. I think part of our role as the church is to learn to have uh, to have these kinds of conversations to to show you know and to also to i think to applaud people in our culture who who are doing the hard work especially in the hospital system of of tending to the needs of the suffering mm -hmm. yeah right palliative care what a what a great what a great work to be involved in what a difficult sure. work what a special kind of person sure. it would take yeah right i know i'm not i know i could not do that but there are some who just have that gift, and I think they ought to be they ought to be celebrated. But I think in the church, we have then the opportunity as well to become the community that emulates the very thing we're we're advocating for. Yeah. You know, how are we caring for the needs of those within the church who are suffering, whether it's physically or emotionally, what however, we need to become a, I think a microcosm of dis displaying what that looks yeah. like while we then learn to address it at the level of of interaction with yeah. people 
you know, it's, it's only going to change if we can help, if we can change the way people think. Yeah. So, so I, yeah, the, the, those are a few things I think we should be probably, probably learning to do, educating ourselves, you know, um, learning from those who've maybe spent time thinking about how to have persuasive conversations and yeah, becoming advocates for the compassionate and those who, who do the work of palliative yep. care. Yeah, and, and not to uh, jump into another subject, but we have talked a lot about suffering uh, today, Scott, a lot about alleviating suffering. And and I think there's a place, and it's not probably on this podcast, maybe in a future one, to talk about the Christian's attitude towards suffering, which is very different than, I think, secular culture, right? That scripture talks about the fact that we will, as Christians, suffer, that we're to expect it, and in fact, be joyful in it, which is very different than what we're hearing from culture. And so when we come to a subject like this, we should be coming from a different perspective when it comes to suffering, to understand that it is part of our life, our journey, uh, and not to fear it, not to run away from it. Uh, but uh, there's lots of material on this and, and lots of things we could say to it. But Sure. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's not to say, oh, let's go looking for suffering. I think, I think that ties into what we talked about earlier on, Sean, about the whole, and tying back to, again, part of, I think the, part of the cause of the symptom, the symptom is made, the cause is, I think, suffering with, without yeah. meaning. And what the Christian should be able to do, or what we, the conversations we do need to have is, is to see the meaning that comes out of suffering. And to help encourage people to see that there can be meaning in suffering. As Christians, we just need to recognize that that meaning is, is, is attached to sharing in the sufferings of Christ, right? It's attached to our redemption, uh, the, the, the God's work of redeeming a broken and fallen world. Our Savior came and suffered in order to redeem his creation. We're participants in that. But that doesn't mean that that our suffering is without right. meaning. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, Scott, you've talked about some resources we're going to include in the description uh, for this episode. Yep. Uh, if anyone has questions about this subject, feel free to email us at info at preparedanswer.org. Uh, like and subscribe. Tell your friends about uh, these issues. And Scott, uh, we may touch on this issue again uh, as time goes by, as you said. Yeah, I have a feeling we'll have a conversation about this again yeah. at some point. Yeah. Good. Well, thanks to our listeners for joining us. Until next episode, God bless. Good. All right. <laughs>